0: Great to hear you all uh, having a great time with one another. Uh, like Donna said, my name is Mark. I am the Gateway Online Campus Pastor. And it's actually the first time I've been down here in a while. I was, I was down here in January uh, and I led worship, which was a whole bunch of fun. But I said to Manny back in January, I'm not coming back until you have aircon, And he's kindly arranged that for me. And uh, yeah, no, if you are here for the first time, you are living the blessed life because this hall. Uh, Did get quite hot quite often, uh, but it's just so lovely today, and it's really great to be here sharing it with you all and celebrating this momentous occasion, 12 years into the Ormo journey, we finally got some air con, so it's something to celebrate. Hey, and uh, we are in a series across Gateway uh, around David and the life of David, and if you've Joined us in the last couple of weeks, you'll know that David was a lot of things. He was a shepherd, he was a king, he was a leader, he was anointed, he was a warrior. Uh, And next week, we're going to hear a little bit about how David was actually quite a broken person as well. Uh, But today, I want to concentrate on David the Wild Worshipper. David the Wild Worshipper. And some of you will know that David wrote a whole bunch of books in the Bible that we call the Psalms. And Psalms are basically songs. They're uh, poems. They're a heart cry out to God, out of the experiences of life. So David didn't write all the Psalms, but this is what the psalmists did. They wrote their worship. They wrote down uh, what they're experiencing and their cries to God for other people to read and to, in a way, connect their story to, to God. And so, uh, I thought I'd reach out and do something a little bit special. I reached out to uh, Ron and Jan Maine, and we're in for a treat, because I've managed to get a sacred artifact, the teenage diary of one Andrew Maine. <laughs> and so get ready for a glimpse into the teenage dreams, heartaches, and ambitions, and probably questionable decisions uh, that Andrew Maine made in his teenage years. And so uh, I wish I'd had the diary with me today, but you'll see it up on the screen. Uh, In June 7th, 1994, Maney writes, Dear Diary, far out. Today was a total disaster. I tried impressing my crush, Emily, by attempting to skateboard in front of her. Well, let's just say that my skateboard skills are about as non-existent as my chances with her. I ended up doing this epic face plant in a puddle. Emily burst out laughing, and now I'm pretty sure my cool factor is at an all-time low. Maybe I'll try rollerblading. I might, uh, might ask mum to buy me some. Keep in mind that man, he's probably about 18, 19 at this stage and he's still asking his mum to buy him rollerblades. <laughs> December 31st, 1994. Dear diary, this is the final entry of 1994. Tonight's New Year's Eve and I'm about to party like it's 1999. <laughs> I've decided on my New Year's resolution, become a master of the ultimate dance move, the moonwalk. I'll let that sit in your mind rent, rent free. <laughs> I've been practicing in my room, but it looks more like I'm fighting an invisible force. Maybe I should stick to the classic robot. I think I can make this work and become a famous dancer. In other news, my attempt at growing a rebellious teenage mustache has failed miserably. It's more like a microscopic caterpillar on my upper lip. I don't know if I'll ever be able to grow facial hair. I think that came too. (laughs) Yes. Uh, February 4, 1995, Dear Diary, my best mate Bill and I have started a garage band. We're calling ourselves the Cheesy Turtles. Why? Because who wouldn't like to listen to a band named after two awesome things? (laughs) Spent the whole day debating who would be the lead singer. I won. In rehearsal, we tried playing R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts, but my voice cracked so much I sounded like a prepubescent walrus. Bill said we might need to consider instrumental music, and I'm starting to think he's onto something. Watch out, world. The cheesy turtles are coming for you. Well, some reflections and insights into the mind of teenage Andrew Mayne. And just like Mayne, David poured out his heart. He poured out his heart. It wasn't just so much about his new band. It wasn't about the things that he was experiencing and growing attractive facial hair, trying to get the ladies, but he wrote a, whole, wrote a whole bunch of psalms that give us a raw and authentic insight into his worship to God. And it was an overflow of his heart. It was an overflow of David's relationship with God. And I don't know about you, and I don't know about what you know about David, but scripture describes David as a man after his own heart a man after his own heart. And I think when the Lord says that about something, somebody and he says, this is the person that's after my own heart, that's something for us to sit up and take notice of. Because as we all uh, want to grow and in, in life and in love with Jesus, this is probably a guy that has something to, we have something to learn from, right? He's a guide, Uh, as we look to be worshippers of God. And depending on what you know about David, I think that sometimes we can assume that David's worshipping heart comes from being specially anointed. You know, maybe because he was a gifted musician, maybe because he was anointed at a young age. Oh, this is the guy uh, that, you know, was a worshipper because of that. And yes, David was a musician. Yes, he used that gift for the Lord, but actually, David's worshiper's heart came from a relationship and a life lived in pursuit of God. And when we picture David, some of us might picture a guy in a lush field is in there playing his lyre and singing the 10,000 BC version of How Great Is Our God. But that's actually not the whole story. That's not... Uh, the, the, the life story of David and we get trapped into thinking that's why he was a worshipper but being a wild worshipper isn't just about being a good singer it's not just for singers as a worship leader and as a worship pastor I had many people share with me many times that they're just not worshippers because they don't have a gift in music they don't have a gift as a singer they don't feel like God has given them that and so they're just not worshippers and I get that I do but I also don't think that's true because if we've reduced worship to just a song we've reduced it to one moment or we've reduced it to one expression or one facet of life and if we're honest we probably even reduced it to 20 minutes on a Sunday and that's not what worship is. One of the risks that we run into when we think like that is uh, when we think that we're not worshippers because we're not singers is that we lay our expectation on people like Jordan and people like Casey and James, the worship leaders and the worship, land, uh, the worship band. We lay our expectation for them to worship on behalf of us. And that's not what God calls us to do. David actually has, uh, he confronts this in his own life at one point, and we see that in Second Samuel chapter 24. We'll just open to that if you have your Bibles today or come up on the screen. Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 18 says, On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of a ruin of the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad, and when Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my Lord the king come to his servant? To buy the threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the thresh, threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to David, this is, uh, sorry, this, this is David speaking. The king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so God comes to David and he says to David, I know it's been a tough time. I know it's been really hard in this journey of kingship, but I'm going to bring revival. And David knew that this was good news because 70,000 people had just died in a famine. Imagine that, 70,000 people had died in a famine and God says to David, it's okay. I'm going to bring healing. I'm going to bring revival to the land. But first, David, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to Aruna's farm. I want you to go to the threshing floor. And I want you to build an altar for me. And on that altar, I want you to sacrifice something. I want you to worship me on that altar. And now Aruna hears about that. And Aruna says to David, well, actually, I'm going to give it all to you for nothing. I'm going to give it all to you for nothing. I'm going to give you the threshing floor. I'm going to give you the ox, uh, uh, the, the timber. I'm going to give you the, the sacrifice. I'm going to give it all to you for nothing because you're my king, and I love my God, and I want this to happen. And the risk that we see here, the risk that happens here, is that David's confronted, and he's confronted with the temptation that you and I get faced with every single week when we come to church, it's the temptation of flicking on the autopilot switch. David could have stood there because he's getting everything for free. There was no cost to him. David knew that he could satisfy worship. He could have, you know, the same worship would have happened without any personal sacrifice at all if he just accepted Aruna's offer. And can you see it? David's here saying, Aruna, I've had a really busy week as king. And I just want to thank you for putting out all the chairs, for putting out all the cards in the seat, for welcoming the people at the door. Thank you for getting the sound set up and thank you for the band because I'm really busy. I'm really tired. But actually, David says, I'm not going to sacrifice that way. If you look at verse 24, he says, No way, I I insist on paying you for it, for I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David paid for the land and he paid for the oxen and the altar. And having done that, God answered his prayer and the plague on Israel is stopped. And you know what David learned on that day and we can learn through David right now. David learned that God's not asking you to bring somebody else's worship. David learned that God wants your worship. God wants our worship. Being a wild worshipper isn't just for singers. It's for all of us because God God wants our worship. He wants the worship of our hearts. He wants the worship of our lives. Point number two is that being a wild worshipper isn't just a wild moment. Being a wild worshiper isn't just a wild moment. Let's flick back a little bit into 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 12. It says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. And so David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. I think I'll keep going. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michelle, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And so what we see here is David and his army bringing the ark of the covenant, which is actually a really significant artifact in the Israelites' life because it's the physical dwelling of God. It's a very significant Uh, in the is for the israelites and david with rapturous joy and worship strips down to his undies his linen ephod and he dances before the lord now this is wild worship if you saw that anywhere you would go that's wild worship some guy stripping down to his undies to worship god and the atmosphere is charged with worship and david the king of israel leads the procession and with everything that he has The sound of jubilant music fills the valleys and the mountains around Jerusalem. And as the ark is carried into the city, David's heart overflows. It overflows with thanksgiving, and he can't help but give worship to the Lord and express his adoration. It's so wild that he clearly gets wrapped up in it all that he loses his clothes. It's wild worship. And I don't know if you noticed Michelle's reaction here. And if you don't know, Michelle's actually David's wife. It says that it's Saul's daughter here, and that's true. But it's also David's wife. And she looks out the window at him, and she's embarrassed. And some of you wives are saying, yes, I know that feeling. I know that feeling. But this is different. She's ashamed. Michelle's ashamed. She actually says, it says in the Scripture, she despised him in her heart. She doesn't see a wild worshiper. She sees a man disgracing himself in public. He's humiliating himself. In reality, what David is doing here is undignified. And it's actually indecent in, you know, probably even today's culture, let alone thousands of years ago. She is embarrassed by him. But David doesn't seem to care. David uh, was more worried about what mattered to the Lord. And his heart was... Uh, his heart was in tune with what, was, what God wanted. He didn't matter to him what it looked like to other people and what other people's expectations were. He didn't want to look excellent as a worshiper in front of him, them. It was wild worship because that's what he wanted to express to God, not to other people. And I wonder if you've ever had that sense of abandonment that releases you from what you might think are the expectations of other people around you to be solely focused on what God wants you to bring, solely focused on the Lord. Have you ever been so focused on giving God glory that it didn't matter what it looked like to other people? I wonder if you've ever felt like that. David got lost in wild worship. And but as much as this makes a great snapshot or a scene in David's uh, life script, it doesn't tell the entire story because David's worship life wasn't just a moment. It wasn't just this thing that we kind of, you know, we have this scene in our mind of him, you know, getting in his undies and worship. It wasn't that. It wasn't even a string of moments. David's worship was a daily pursuit of God. It was a lifestyle. And so David was actually known for his relentless pursuit of God. And we see that uh, in 1 Samuel, just a little bit earlier in David's life. King Saul, who was the king before David, was being tormented by an evil spirit. And so he calls on David. He says, come to me, David, because he recognized that there was a tangible presence of God on David's life. It was a presence that was cultivated through a lifestyle of worship. And a lot of you will know in Psalm 23, it's a famous psalm. We read it often, um, particularly at funerals, where David writes that the Lord was his shepherd. The Lord was his shepherd. And David was a shepherd himself. He knew that it wasn't just a nice line to write. He knew uh, the role a shepherd played in the life of a sheep. A shepherd is a constant protector. It's a provider and a presence. For David, worship wasn't an isolated moment. It wasn't this thing in the minute. It was an acknowledgement that God was his constant guardian, the ever-present provider. God was an abiding presence in every aspect of existence. That's what David knew. It wasn't about a moment. Jesus also spoke about how worship was more than an event. In chapter 4, Jesus encounters, uh, sorry, John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman at the well. Just look over to that. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 21, he said, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And here's what I reckon Jesus is saying here is inviting us into this idea that God is seeking people who worship with their whole being. They worship with their whole being. That's what spirit is, with an understanding of who he is. So spirit meaning that they worship not just going through the motions, but with their heart, their whole being. And truth meaning that God is not just this unknowable Uh, God, but He is God revealed to us. He's God revealed to us in Scripture, and as He walks with us, and we walk with Him, that's who God is, so spirit and in truth. And in essence, Jesus is calling us to a lifestyle of worship, not just a moment. It's a continual, heartfelt pursuit of God in spirit and in truth, acknowledging Him for who He is, everything that He is, and trusting in Him. And sometimes, sometimes I don't think that's our reality. Sometimes I think we're guilty of chasing the worship experience, in inverted commas. We look for that kind of last night at youth camp feeling, that emotional high that helps us to feel close to God the presence of God. But let me tell you, as somebody who has lived that for you know multiple seasons through my life, if you're chasing the worship experience, but you're not living the worship lifestyle, it'll seem very disingenuous. It'll be very disconnected. It'll, be, it'll all be very fleeting. As, the, as soon as the buzz wears off, and it invariably does, probably not after, long after you leave the building, really, and you feel alone, and you feel disconnected probably from the Lord, and you just need that next worship hit. You know, it's kind of like a drug in that way. You're chasing that moment. I think we're all guilty sometimes of chasing that worship experience, but we neglect the lifestyle that precedes it. But when we flip that. When we flip that and we embrace a lifestyle of worship when our words, our actions, our dreams, our goals, our ambitions, our pursuits are offered as God, offered to God as worship, we don't need to chase the experience because suddenly our whole life is intertwined in connection with God. If we chase the moment rather than a life of relationship, we rip ourselves off and we end up with these dotted moments of worship throughout life rather than a continuous, filled life walking with God in worship. And that's the way we're designed to be. Now, I don't know if uh, many of you are Broncos fan. I'm guessing that because I'm on the Gold Coast, most of you follow the Titans if you follow rugby league at all. Um, but I am a, Gold, uh, a Broncos fan. I've always been a Broncos fan. Uh, and I've been really lucky that for the last 30 years of being a NRL supporter, uh, that I've had a sensational club to follow. We've had lots of highs. We've had lots of grand finals. We've had really great teams come through, except for the last five years. The last five years have been woeful. They've been terrible. Uh, some of the moments I've to hide my head under the pillow because we've been that bad. We got the wooden spoon for the first time in the club history, uh, only a few years back. Uh, But this year, we finally found some form. We found some form through good leadership. We found some form through some hard work. We finally started to string some wins together, and we made it all the way to the grand final, which I was very, very pleased about, even though we lost. It was probably one of the best grand finals of all times. And I've been going to, I'm not a member for the Broncos, but I've been going to a bunch of games for a bunch of years and I've started to take my boys along and they've started to really enjoy it as well. Only one of them goes for the Broncos at this stage. I'm praying for the other. (laughs) But when you go along to the stadium, it's booming with cheers, high fives. You see a sea of Broncos jerseys kind of going through the gates as everybody finds their seats. Fans who have been with the team through thick and thin are soaking in the moments. They're savouring their success after enduring a few years of, let's say, not so good moments, right? We're stuck with them. And then there's this crew who have only showed up in the last 12 months as we started to play good footy. And they know that the Bronx will win because they're a really good team right now. They're waving their flags. They're even singing the team songs. And you'd think by looking at them, they've been part of this journey the whole time from, you know, for many, many years. But that's not true. They're actually just hangers-on. They're actually just um, you know, the bandwagon crew, the fair-weather fans who didn't suffer through the heartbreaking years, even though they were only a few years, and the tough rebuilding phases. For them, the thrill is the victory in the moment now, the celebration and the collective buzz of the crowd. And in the world of worship, I've seen a similar thing. There are those who chase the championship moments, the lively worship services, the conferences, the events that all provide the emotional high, but then when life throws them challenges and worship experience maybe wasn't a roaring roaring success, the commitment, it tends to waver. The feeling, it tends to waver. And it's like they're missing the chance and missing the chance for a consistent, enduring relationship with God through daily devotion, prayer, and a life dedicated to worship. Just as genuine sports fans support their team through victories and defeats, I've come to realize that true worshipers maintain a, a consistent connection with God. They seek Him in the jubilant moments, the high moments, the mountaintop moments of praise, but they also seek Him in the hard times of life. They seek Him in the valleys, in the shadows of darkness, and in the quiet, in the reflective place of solitude. They seek Him through all seasons of life, and even though worship changes its tone through all of the, those seasons, their commitment isn't swayed by the highs and lows of emotional experiences, but rooted in enduring love and an enduring desire to live a life of Worship recognizing that God is present. He's present in every season. Being a wild worshiper isn't just about a wild moment. And being a wild worshiper isn't just when we feel good. David's life was not a constant victory. We think because he was a king that he had, you know, he just lived in the lavish excess as we would see a king today. But that's not true. He faced numerous trials, including real battles. He was hunted and persecuted. He had his own failures. He had people betray him. And yet in those highs and lows, he maintained a heart of worship. And when we look at David and we want to learn from David, the man after God's own half, we we see that being a wild worshipper isn't just reserved for times of success. It's, It's a constant posture of his heart, acknowledging God's sovereignty in every season. Worship, in its simplest definition, is just showing worth to God. It's showing worth to God. And I think there's a case to say that when we don't feel like it, when worship is hard, when it costs us that little bit more or that lot more, when we worship in those moments, it probably has uh, a little bit more worth because it's easy to worship when everything's going well, right? You know that. I know that. It's easy to worship when we're on the top of the mountain, when we feel like life is cruisy, like everything's going really well, like we've got the job we want and everything's going right in our family. Our community's going well. It's easy to worship in the good times, but pouring out your heart in the hard times might, might just be that greater act of worship. I've gone through those seasons in my own life. In 2014, um, My family went through the hardest season we've ever been through. My wife's uh, sister uh, took her own life. And that was incredibly crushing for us. Incredibly crushing. In that moment where we're confused and disillusioned, it would have been so easy for me just to turn my heart off and to turn my back on God and, and just even though I might have still had faith in God, to say, I need this moment just to recover because I don't know what's going on. But I remember in that moment having a really clear understanding that I will never have this opportunity in my life again to worship God with this level of pain, with this level of grief. I'll never have this opportunity again in my life to worship God in this moment. And so in that moment, I turned my heart to Him. And I found that God was the comfort I needed. He was the healing I needed. And even though the situation didn't change, my sister-in-law was still gone. She left a massive hole in our lives that we still feel to this day. God was the constant that I needed. And David faced his own times where worship wasn't a reaction to a warm emotion, to life going really well. It wasn't even a reaction to feeling close to God, which I'm sure all of you have seasons of going through. I have those seasons as well. In Psalm 22, David writes from verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. He continues down in verse 6. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. See, David is being mocked. He's being mocked for following the very God that he feels distant and disconnected from. He feels like God is unresponsive to his cry and he's still getting mocked. But in that moment, he still worships. David still cries out to God and maybe you're sitting here today and you feel forsaken by God. You feel like he's left you. You're like, your cries of anguish go seemingly unanswered. Maybe that's your story or maybe you're being mocked by others because you've trusted in God and it hasn't turned out the way that you'd hoped. Maybe today is the day that you have to worship God in the journey of trusting Him. Maybe that's your call today. Trust God in the journey of trusting Him. Again, in Psalm 51, in verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David is in the midst of his own brokenness and shame in this moment. This is a moment that he writes down after he's had an affair and he knows that he's stuffed up. He's stuffed up. He's stuffed up so much. But he still decides to turn to God and worship Him. And then later in this same scripture, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Maybe you've stuffed up. Maybe you've stuffed up in your life. I know I have plenty of times in my life. Maybe this is causing you to turn your heart away from God. Maybe the shame that you're feeling is just too hard for you to overcome and so you keep your back to God because that just feels that little bit easier. But maybe today, maybe today is the day that you need to turn and face God and worship. And in recognizing His holiness... His goodness, His kindness. Pour out your heart and ask for forgiveness. David also writes in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? When the wicked advance, sorry, I skipped a verse there. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall be I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. David is waiting on the Lord to deliver him from his enemies, physical enemies, real battles, people who really wanted to kill him. It's a time of worship when he's in trouble. That David knows who his God is And so this psalm is covered with triumph and confidence. And maybe today you stand in that confidence in God. Maybe that's your heart posture, that you know you've got enemies, you know you've got things that are wrong in your life and aren't the way that God would have them, but you know that God is stronger. Or maybe the fear of your enemies is crippling you. causing you to retreat. Maybe today you need to stand and worship the God who is able to do immeasurably more than you've ever asked or you could ever imagine. Psalms, these songs that we've just read out are born out of a life of a wild worshipper and far from being the exception, God is actually inviting us to have the same type of relationship with him not a moment not worship that's dotted throughout life often on a Sunday offered for 20 minutes but a lifestyle of worship a lifelong encounter with him as we journey through life with him in mind and I don't know where you are in your walk of faith I don't know where you are in your worship life right now But today we're invited to emulate David's example by praising God, not only on the mountaintop, if that's where you are, but also in the valleys, if that's where you are. Recognizing that true worship transcends circumstance. And so I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet if you're able this morning. And ironically, this is a moment of worship. (laughs) This is a moment. But my hope and my heart is that this is actually a line in the sand where a whole bunch of us say, I want my life to permeate worship. I don't want to come here once every week and lift up a song, but I want my life to be a song of worship to you, God recognizing that whatever I'm going through whatever I'm experiencing God that you are with me, that you are for me my confidence is in you because you are that provider, you are that protector you are that abiding presence that I can trust in you are the shepherd of my life and so I'm just going to invite you right now just to close your eyes if you feel comfortable Say God, here I am. Everything that is consuming me, everything that I feel in this moment that I have felt throughout the week, I give it all to you. And I worship you. I choose to worship you, God. I choose to worship in the pain. I choose to worship in the trial I choose to worship in the uphill journey I choose to worship in the mountaintop I choose to worship because everything is good wherever you are in that choose to worship today and then don't let this moment stop when you walk out the door because his presence is always with you worship together this morning in the goodness of God